Well, today we find ourselves in, in the second chapter of the story, which is called God Builds a Nation. So this is the beginnings of God's Word, where he's calling certain people following Adam and Eve to bear his, bear his name, to bear his DNA as they wait upon the Savior to come. And Jesus comes out of the, out of the line of the people that God calls to himself. Uh, but, th- but uh, you know, last week, what, what, what we saw is, and what I've been saying is that from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible, there's this theme of God desiring a people for himself. A people for himself. A people who he calls out of darkness into light and the people who represent his presence in the world. That's what God's always been after from Israel all the way up to the church today. And it's still what he's after. He's, he's, he's after building and rebuilding the people of God in every generation. But last week we saw the beginning of the story. You know, God desires the people for himself. He creates humanity. He places them in a perfect environment in a garden in Eden. And, um, and it, it, it hints at this fact that humanity, Adam and Eve, walked with God in the garden in unbroken fellowship, which is a really amazing thing. But all that changed when Adam and Eve were deceived, they disobeyed God, and then they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden into a wilderness that was not prepared to, to, to be bountiful and plentiful like the Garden of Eden was. It was a place where things came hard. The Garden of Eden had four rivers watering it all the time. You didn't have to walk around with buckets or anything. It was constantly being watered. Outside of the Garden of Eden, sweat and toil and hauling buckets of water to water. You know, it was, it was not a pretty picture. And all of this came about because sin entered the world, and, and God's good plan for humanity was, was rejected by our first parents, leading to this kind of issue that all of us have from Christ, from, uh, not from Christ, from Adam all the way till, till us today, where we are prone to wander. We have a sin nature that wants to rebel and walk away from God. And as much as God's offer to become a part of his people is enticing to us, we also have this part of us that doesn't really want to follow God. And uh, we, we see that popping up, up in us all the time today, you know. Um, we are double-minded people, you know. That's how we're born in the world. And uh, sometimes with the same words that we use to bless the Lord and worship, we use to curse somebody later in the day, maybe in our car drive on the way home. You know, we are feeble and frail people who are prone to wander, prone to falling, just like our original parents were. But God wants people for himself. So he made a way for us to, to be redeemed through Jesus and to become his people. But uh, being banished from the Garden of Eden was, was a huge hit for us. Um, but, and, and, and not only that, but Genesis 1 to 11, it's just this picture of, of sin and wickedness getting worse and worse in the world. Worse and worse. So murders and these types of, of, of heinous acts are being perpetuated from generation to generation, and the wickedness gets really, really bad. So God uh, decides to flood the world saving Noah and his family. And then from, from, from Noah, we have uh, a, a, new, a new crop of people, starting with righteous Noah and his kids. And uh, these are now going to be the people that God builds his people from, from Noah and his kids. Unfortunately, shortly after Noah and his kids got safely onto dry land, he plants a vineyard, he gets wasted, he gets jackhammered. And <laughs> He is so drunk that he can't, he, he's not aware of anything that's going on. And his, uh, his younger son kind of talks about it with his brothers. The older brothers respectfully cover him up. 
um, in the tent. But this is a story that's meant to show us, look, there's not a righteousness found in people that can save them, you know? It's only going to be through, <laughs> through, through a future Messiah that we're going to be saved because all of us, even the most righteous Noah, prone to wander, prone to wander. But God promised at that time he would never destroy his creation with water again. And he put a rainbow in the sky to show uh, the, the promise. Um, that's God putting down his warrior's bow and saying, I'm done. I'm not going to be wiping out humankind with, with a flood ever again. But from these people, we, conti- we continue to see God cultivating a people for himself um, in the post-flood time period. And out of this lineage in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram to be the head of his people. The thing that's so, so striking to me about Abraham's story is that in, in his story, we see a picture of God's faithfulness versus humanity's unfaithfulness. In Genesis uh, 15, God has called Abraham as, as his as a father of many nations. He's made a covenant with Abraham. And he calls Abraham to make a sacrifice. And he says to get uh, a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon, and to cut those animals in half and put them at like a little alley of, of, of animals. And it says in the scriptures in verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Here God is prophesying about the Egyptian slavery of God's people that was coming in the future. So God's fully aware of what's going to happen in the future, as we can see. Um, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they'll come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, where's Abraham when God's saying this to him? What's he doing? He's sleeping. God is talking to a sleeping man and sharing this promise with him. It says in verse 17, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the the pieces of the animal that Abraham had prepared. Now on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cabanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Yirgashites, and Jebusites. Thank you very much. (laughs) Here... This, this is such a striking picture of the faithfulness of God. This is such a striking picture of, of how God works with people. And the bottom line is, God is faithful to his covenant promises with us, even when we are faithless, even when we're sleeping. And, Abra- and uh, God promises to uphold his end of the covenant while Abraham is sleeping, not, not saying anything. He's, he's in a deep sleep. And that is what God does. That's what this 
ceremony meant. What God was saying when he passed through those pieces is, may I be like these animals, dead and torn asunder, if I should break my promise. God is a God of promises, and God works with people in remarkable ways to bring about his purposes and to bring about a people for himself. Today we're going to be looking at Jacob, uh, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. So this is a couple generations from Abraham. And, and Jacob is this, this character in the Bible, this man who lived a long time ago that we can really identify with in many ways. Jacob has more struggles, he has more failures, and more doubts than just about anybody in the Bible. And he's is sort of like a, a scoundrel for a large part of his story. Um, I like that word scoundrel to describe Jacob because he was, he was a deceiver. Um, but Jacob's life is fascinating to me. And what, God, what I sense God is saying is, learn about who I am through looking at the story of Jacob. It's fascinating to me because though Jacob is this a liar, that he's a scoundrel, he does some bad stuff, his life is packed with the supernatural activity of God. And his life is blessed, not based on his works, but based on God's faithfulness to his covenant that he made with Abraham two generations before. And God's goodness and grace is manifested in Jacob's life in a remarkable way. And, and one, of, one of the things is people will often say, God can work through a broken person like Jacob to accomplish his purposes. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But I'd like to say that not only does God work through Jacob to bring about his purposes, he also is working in Jacob's life the whole time out of love for Jacob. So God is, God is the God of the big picture. Like he is bringing his plan of redemption uh, through Jesus Christ and through history. But he's also the God of the individual where he loves the scoundrel. He loves this person who's a liar and a cheat and a conniving guy. The annoying little brother of Esau. And this, so this guy that has all these struggles, all these failures, all these doubts, God works in his life out of love, and he works to bring about his purposes of making a people for himself. It's an amazing story. So what do I mean when I, when I say, you know, Jacob was this kind of scoundrel, which is just such a great word. Um, it all started in the beginning of his life. Abr Abram's wife, Sarah, gave birth to Isaac. And Isaac is the, the promised, miraculously conceived son that God gave to, to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. Both of them post 100, I believe. Um, and this is the son that would carry God's blessing forward into time. So Isaac is the son of promise, born to an old couple whose wife was barren. Against all, against all logic, uh, she has a baby. So that's, that's, um, that's Isaac. And then Isaac uh, marries Rebecca, and she conceives twin sons. So from, from this very moment in, in their life, as we read in Genesis 25, it says the babies jostled within her. And the Lord tells her, two nations are in your, your womb. The older will serve the younger. So th this, is a, this is something, this is part of the story where we see something true of God. He's not surprised by anything that happens. He's saying to her right there, there's two nations in your womb, the older will serve the younger, which is not the typical order of things. Uh, so God's not surprised. Out comes Esau, the firstborn, with Jacob coming close behind him, actually grasping on Esau's heel. 
And the name, the name Jacob that was given to Jacob actually literally means he grasps the heel. So this is uh, a, uh, a way of saying in Hebrew, he's a deceiver. He's a usurper. He's a troublemaker. So Esau comes out, little brother on, on the heel, just like that. Um, Esau and Jacob could not have been any more different. They really couldn't have. And if you've been, you know, I've learned so much uh, being a parent now to four kids, they're all so different. And I was talking with a friend this week. You know, sometimes something that is a good experience for one kid, the other kid hates it. So it's hard to, hard to keep everyone happy. Um, but Esau and Jacob could not have been more different. You know, Esau, what it says, was a hairy, red-skinned man who was a fierce warrior and a hunter. And Jacob was a fair-skinned man and preferred to stay around the camp fight, campsite uh, with his mother. Um, many, many times Jacob would be at a hunting camp making food for people that were out hunting, but he was not a hunter himself. Uh, Esau was the beloved of his father, and Jacob was the beloved of his mother. So we have favoritism, and have you ever been through that in your family? I don't know. Maybe. I think we're all, all of my kids are my favorite, I say to them. <laughs> and then someone's like, who's your real favorite? For different reasons, they're all my favorite. But, but with Jacob and Esau, there was real sibling rivalry. Mom loves Jacob. Dad loves Esau. It's a big trouble. And one day, Esau comes to the hunting camp after a long day in the country, and it says, the text says he was famished. And he said he was near death. He was so hungry and thirsty. I don't know if that was an exaggeration or if it was true, but that's how he felt. And he sees Jacob at the, at the camp preparing stew, and it says it's red stew, so Esau's like, that's my stew, I'm red too, I like this stuff. And he requests a bowl. And Jacob tells Esau that he'd be happy to share this food with Esau if Esau will swear to give him his birthright as the firstborn. And the, and the birthright in this culture was the right to be recognized as the firstborn and the person that got the greater share of the wealth. So um, he says, okay, I'll give you a bowl of soup if you give me your birthright. And Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? And he promised away his birthright to his brother. Here we have Jacob living up to his name as a heel-grabbing deceiver and liar. You know, he, he, he tricks what appears to be a simple-minded brother <laughs> um, and takes away his birthright. A couple of chapters later in Genesis 27... We see Jacob living out in his life what happened verbally with the stew. He lives it out. This time uh, is when Isaac is on his deathbed. That's Jacob and Esau's father. And Jacob's mother, Rebekah, hears that Isaac plans on bestowing the blessings onto his sons, starting with the firstborn. And so Rebekah, who loves Jacob, hatches a plan with, with, with Jacob to, to, to deceive her husband, Jacob's father, into literally giving Jacob the blessing of the firstborn that was supposed to go to Esau. But remember, as much as this is a conniving human plan, and these things are not, are not good, you know, have playing favorites in the family is not good, deceiving your husband use it with your child's help is not good. You know, these are all bad things that are, are awful. But I'd like you to remember that when Jacob and Esau were in their mother's womb, God said beforehand, the older will serve the younger. God knew 
He knew what was coming. And he had provision for it. So Rebecca makes the stew with Esau's recipe, just like Isaac likes it. And she dresses up Esau in, in, in uh, Jacob and Esau's clothing and even puts animal hair on his body to feel like he's a hairy man. You know, Jacob is frightened, as anyone might be, about deceiving his dad. You know, is this going to go badly? And Rebecca says to Jacob, if you get found out, may the curse fall on me. So mom is really pushing hard. What a great mom. Um, the plan works. You know, Isaac almost finds out what's happening, but he's, he's a very, very old man. He's blind. His, his senses are all kind of less than they used to be. And he, he's, he says, I hear the voice of Jacob, but, you're, but you smell like Esau, you feel like Esau. Finally, he reaches out and touches him, and he knows this is Esau in his heart. And so this poor, vulnerable, deceived, blind, patriarch father, Isaac, um, gives the firstborn blessing to Jacob. That's a, that's a big hit to his brother. When Esau comes back later on, Isaac, the father, does not have really any more blessings to give. He's given everything to his brother. But he does prophesy that someday Esau will be out from under the thumb of his brother Jacob. Otherwise, um, Esau gets the raw deal. And Esau becomes infuriated. And he's been keeping track. He says, this is the second time my brothers deceived me. He took my birthright, and now he took my firstborn blessing from my father. It says in Genesis 27, 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob and said to himself, I will kill Jacob after my father has died. So not to, not to hurt his father in, when he's living, but wait till he's dead and then kill his brother. So that's sort of Esau's plan. Once again, Jacob has lived up to his name and deceived and grasped the heels of his brother. But despite Jacob's nature, his sin nature, and his actions and all these reprehensible deceptions, the things he did to his father, to his brother. Despite all of this, Jacob has all kinds of supernatural God activity in his life. Tons of it. First, he has a dream where he sees a stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. So God pulls back the curtain on on the spiritual realm and shows Jacob the spiritual realm. It's this picture of angels leaving to do the, the job that God gave to them and, and coming back into God's realm. And in this vision, God speaks to Jacob and reaffirms the covenant he had made to Abraham and to Isaac. He's now reaffirming it and giving it to Jacob. After all Jacob's done so far, he says, all people on earth will be blessed through you. Through you, through Jacob. Now God has not given up on his plan to have a people for himself, And God is making the point that he will be able to do this despite the shortcomings of his people. He can do it no matter what. His plan will be sure, yes, and amen. Jacob has not been disqualified by his sin and deception, but God lovingly wants to work in his life to change him, and God in his mercy and kindness gives him a taste of his own medicine. That's what God does. This is the thing. God's purposes are moving forward. He's making a people for himself through this nation but he's also working in Jacob's life because he loves Jacob, even though Jacob is not so good right now. And he gives Jacob a taste of his own medicine. Jacob runs for his life from Esau. He goes out among his extended family and, uh, and finds a wife 
the daughter of Laban, who's a relative. And Laban tells Jacob that he will give Jacob his firstborn daughter, Rachel, who Jacob really is attracted to, in, re in return for seven years of labor. So Jacob uh, works for seven years. They have the wedding. Due to a mixture of Middle Eastern customs, which I'm not going to get into, and probably alcohol, um, he wakes up the next morning, and Leah, Rachel's not as attractive sister, is with him there. He's like, what the heck? He got tricked by Laban. He goes to Laban and says, you gave me uh, the wrong daughter. And Laban says, it's not our custom to marry off the younger daughter before the older daughter. And so hogwash, right? He, he dece Laban deceived him. And he, but he says to Jacob, now he's got a hook in him, you know, can I get seven more years and then I'll give you the other daughter as well. And so now Jacob says, fine. And so he works for Laban for 14 years and, and marries these two daughters. And um, just as in Jacob's life, there's a favorite wife and an unfavorite wife, and it's just a big rivalry. It's a big, terrible thing. Uh, Jacob had been deceived. And I can't help but think that he might have gotten to know that feeling that he had made other people feel for so long, that feeling of being tricked, that feeling of being deceived, that feeling of a family member betraying you. This is what Jacob experiences. The same thing he made other people feel for all those years. During these years of working for Laban, Jacob has children with Leah and Rachel. And, and that, at that time, there was the, the tradition of those women's maidservants also bearing children for that person. Um, and, in, and through all of this, Jacob has 12 sons. And I'll see if you recognize these names. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Twelve tribes of Israel. It's just an amazing thing. God's purpose is going forward, despite this incredible amount of sin, and God knowing everything beforehand and working everything out in such a way that every person is responsible for their, their sin, uh, of course, but God can work through it to bring about his purposes anyway. So sensing, for some reason, that Laban could not be trusted, Jacob takes his wife, his wives, and his children, and he leaves in the middle of the night, and Laban is absolutely furious uh, with Jacob. But then God appears to Laban and says, do not say anything good or bad to him. Like, you, can't, you can't retaliate, he basically says. Not even verbally. And so Laban goes up to meet them, pretty angry, but he ends up blessing their whole family and sending them on their way because God told him he had to. Once again, God proving himself faithful to multiply his people, even out of bad circumstances. But here in the story, we see that Jacob has changed. You know, these 14 years of working for Laban, who was his, um, dece another deceiver above him, of course, he's been humbled. He's apparently been humbled by his life. <clears throat> God's, God's mercy given to, to him, despite his shortcomings, seems to have mellowed Jacob out a little and made him humble. And once again, we see in the beginning of Genesis 32, it says, more, more God activity. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Now, Jacob goes on his way from Laban, and the angels of God met him. He could see them. And it was such an incre incredible spiritual experience for Jacob. He said, this place is called the camp of God. These angels are, are here. And that's a lot of supernatural activity. A stairway to heaven, God... 
giving you this promise and, and this vision, um, seeing angels working. It's all this amazing activity. But all of this leads into to the, to the, uh, the crowning jewel of this story. Jacob is, is fearing Esau, who he hears is coming to meet with him. And he cries out to God, saying, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when you crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. It's hard to believe this prayer came from this guy, Jacob, but God had been working in his heart. He was humbled. He realized, looking at his life and his experiences with Laban, I'm not worthy of the kindness and faithfulness God's shown me. I'm not worthy of God keeping his end of the bargain even when I screw it up. He threw himself on the mercy of God for fear of his life. But he, he just knew God had worked in his life to know it's not of you, it's me. It's me. It's my faithfulness, not your faithfulness. It's going to win the day. So Jacob is scared of Esau. He hatches a plan to try to protect his family. He sends ahead of him lots of gifts of cattle. He had lots of wealth at this point, other possessions, hoping to appease his brother Esau so that Esau might have mercy on him. At the height of Jacob's anxiety over meeting with Esau, he goes to sleep and encounters a mysterious man uh, that wrestles with him all night long. And when the mysterious man, it says, saw he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and wrenched it. The man said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob says, not until you bless me. And it was at that moment when the man reveals himself as the angel of God. And, you know, commentators of this would say, this is a pre-incarnate Christ. This is God in, in a human form wrestling with Jacob. And God changes Jacob's name from deceiver, from Jacob, to Israel. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. For Israel means he struggled with God. You have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And the depth of that observation from God can only be known by God himself. He's watched Jacob from being not quite born yet and grabbing onto his brother's heel through all of his deceptions, through all of his life. And God's assessment is, you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome in Genesis 32, 28. What could God be talking about there? He'd have to be... The, the only credit for Jacob's story can really go to God. That's all I can say. But God lovingly says, you've overcome, you've changed. The next day, Jacob prepared to meet Esau, uh, who last time we heard from him was waiting to kill Jacob. So he divides his people into, into various groups, so not everyone will be killed if, if Esau decides to attack. He's strategizing, sending out uh, different gifts to Esau. And uh, when, when he sees Esau approaching, he bows down to Esau seven times. Pick it up in Genesis 33, 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. 
Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, Jacob said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, Let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. What a striking sentence. For to see your face, Esau, is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Jacob knew what it was like to, to see the face of God you know, after messing it up over and over and over again. Um, he, had, he had wrestled with an angel of God. He had seen a ladder from heaven. He had seen angels accompanying him all around the times when he shouldn't have seen all this activity based on his behavior. But he learned that God is merciful and gracious. And he learned that the face of God was, was favorable towards him, despite his sin. And to see Esau's face and to see that human forgiveness from Esau that somehow had been taken care of by God along the way, in a story that we don't have to read, unfortunately, um, this kind face of Esau reminds Jacob of seeing the face of God, which he's seen his entire life. And he knew, it's not of me, it's, it's, it's a... It's a gift of God, the whole thing. And what struggling with God and men and overcoming, you know, he struggled with Esau, he struggled with God, and he overcame. And he overcame because of mercy and grace, because of God's mercy and grace expressed in his life and expressed through Esau. This, this morning, I, re, I really, I just wanted to share with you an example of how God has worked in history in order to begin to have a people for himself. And I wanted you to see how God lovingly works in a person's lifetime to change them and to glorify himself and to show his mercy and grace. Jacob was, to, to God, Jacob was not just a means to an end. Like, I'm going, to, I'm going to, you know, have Jacob so that I can have a people for myself. That wasn't all Jacob was to God. Jacob was someone who, loved, who was loved by God. And God transformed him despite his shortcomings. All of that spiritual activity, the visions, the angels, the wrestling match with God himself and the angel of the Lord, all of this is substantial, but it was completely unearned and based in God's mercy and God's grace towards Jacob. So what we see in the story is how, is how God works with humanity. When we read the story, we can say, yeah, God moved his plan forward. From this guy, Jacob, came the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the process of building a people for himself, he transformed Jacob as well. That is why Jacob said, to see your face is like seeing the face of God to Esau. Because he was received favorably by the Lord. For us too, we are, we are people who are prone to wander. And there's lots of theologies out there in churches where people are saying, hey, we're just getting better and better and better. We're doing a victory lap. But truthfully, uh, the, the Bible gives a warning that's very telling. It says, when you correct someone else, watch out 
that you yourself don't fall into the same trap that they're in when you correct them. Like, we are always just one step away from falling on our face with our, with our sin nature and our, our tendencies that we have uh, to rebel against God. But God's gracious, faithful, covenant love was made for people like us, people who are prone to wander, people who are prone to, to walk away from the purposes of God. And God will, it's like the hammer of God is found in his mercy and his grace in our lives. It just changes us and transforms us into a new creation. So as we come uh, together to worship again this morning, we're going we're to sing more to the Lord Jesus. And I, I want you to reflect on this story. Again, the big thing that God said to me was, just tell the story and show who I am in this story. Um, think about this God of Jacob, of Isaac and Abraham, and, and, and yourself as being a, a character in this narrative of your own life and in this narrative God is sharing. Um, you can expect the same grace, love, and faithfulness of God as Jacob did. And through your life, God wants to build his kingdom and establish his rule and reign on the earth. Father God, we know that you are good. Your loving kindness endures forever. Your faithfulness goes from generation to generation. We have also struggled with people and struggled with you. I pray that we would experience overcoming through your grace and your mercy. For you both forgive us, and then you give us the righteousness of Christ. So Lord, may we learn to respond to your touch in our lives as you are working like a potter with his clay to make us into a people for you. Now, my prayer would be that, Lord, if anyone has felt disqualified from being a part of your people, that they would know that you are the one that qualifies them, God. We are not qualified by our works, but it's a gift from God 